Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. Hello and welcome. I'm Caroline Hebiger. Now, we're going to be talking inevitably about the virus again, and the latest is what the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, himself of course in self-isolation, is facing in the way of criticism over his handling of the coronavirus crisis. The government admitted yesterday only 2,000 NHS staff out of more than 500,000 who work on the front line have had tests for coronavirus. The NHS paediatrician, Dr Goody Singh, has told us that testing can't come quickly enough, but at the same time, the economic impact is becoming very tangible. Caroline? Yeah, almost a million people have claimed universal credit in the past two weeks. That's up from around 100,000 in a normal fortnight. The surge coincides with when the UK first imposed the lockdown in Britain. Uh, and, Roger, really, the overriding feeling is that the the fear around uh, the number of cases going up and also the time lag of how long it takes to implement all of these measures before you get any results. Indeed, and right up to now there's been a kind of cross-party consensus about all this, but it's beginning to fray a bit. Let's join now Bill Esterson, who's Labour MP for Sefton Central. Bill, welcome to the programme. Thanks very much for being with us. Thanks very much for having me on the programme. Well, let me pick up on that sense that I mean, we have had up to now that the amount of party political issue has been quite thin on this. But is it? would you say that's now breaking down perhaps that consensus politics over issues like testing and the provision of safety equipment? I, I, I don't think the consensus is breaking down. I mean, we, you know, we're as supportive as we can be. But yeah, there's a difference between being partisan and asking searching questions to try and improve what the government is doing. Now, that, that's been going on all the way from the start of the crisis. So when we've asked questions about testing or about PPE or about ventilators or indeed about the financial packages, it's because we've got people coming to us saying, here's what's happening on the ground and there's a gap between what the government has said they're trying to do and what's actually happening. So, uh, it, and, and it's been cross-party, actually, the kind of commentary uh, and analysis and scrutiny and challenge that's been made. So I don't, think, I don't think it's on a partisan basis, but there are some very real concerns, particularly about testing uh, yeah. and the need to make sure that the people who should be at home are at home and the, sh- and the people who can go to work can go to work, especially amongst the, uh, uh, in the NHS. 
Bill, my question is, why isn't it partisan? I can understand that we must all unite, but there were weeks in which the government had time to prepare and perhaps did not do the right job, did not you know, even take into account its own preparations uh, you know, in terms of the previous um, sort of dry runs of this kind of uh, pandemic research had been done, you know, that weeks were lost. And I think there are some very serious concerns about what has happened in the past, and those will properly be explored. And yes, and some people are asking those questions, right, including us. But actually, because of the nature of the crisis, look, this is so serious, we can't actually afford to spend our time looking backwards um, unless it's to inform what needs to happen going forwards, um, because it gets in the way of tackling the crisis. So the main thrust is to try and help the government to improve on what they've done and, and to get it right today and tomorrow rather than going, you got it wrong yesterday, mm. aren't you terrible? I mean, there'll be time for inquiries and all of these things will come out and that's, that's as it should be. But right now, the, the main thing is to help them get it right. Yeah, but the, but the point is that surely at the moment, Bill, that's really difficult because you, the, the Parliament's suspended. Many MPs are in lockdown or self-isolating. I mean, the amount of scrutiny you can bring is pretty small. Well, you're you're absolutely right about that, Roger. It, it is more difficult. I mean, we are we were due to be in recess um, as of yes. Uh, where are we now? It's Thursday. It's difficult to, difficult to keep track of time when days you're, uh, days just go by without notice. Well, you, you might you might say that. Um, I mean, we went into recess a few days early, um, so we lost a bit of the scrutiny. I think it would have been helpful to be there to push the chancellor on the package for self-employed people last week, for example. Um, and I think it would have been really helpful to push them Monday and Tuesday on, on, on the testing. But that didn't happen. And we are, yeah, I think there is a need for journalists who get the chance. And I realise you're not, yeah, I, I've not heard Bloomberg on the, on, on the calls with the Prime Minister or, or, his, uh, or, or, or his cabinet at five o'clock. We, we go days. where we're invited, Bill, I can assure I, you. I'm sure you do. I mean, I'd lo- and I'd love for you to be there. But look, those journalists who are there have got a really important job to do because they can ask these questions directly. Uh, and we're trying to use the media to push those questions. But actually, um, we have got access to Treasury officials. We have got access to NHS officials directly. So we are trying to use those channels uh, as well. It is not ideal. Um, mm. And that's why what my colleague Shion Wura has done uh, with colleagues across party, actually, uh, working with the Speaker of the House of Commons, Lindsay Hoyle, is really important because we've now got agreement in principle that there should be uh, scrutiny of government in Parliament, but done virtually, and that that could potentially happen before Parliament's due to go back on the 21st of April. It should happen before that, and and I think that we are now... It's going to be interesting what the government's response to that is because I think I think you're right. That should happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite amazed that you know nobody had thought about having a virtual parliament before. I mean, you know, it's not like natural disasters don't happen in other parts of the world. But anyway, let's also talk about the Labour leadership. Yeah, and, there are, and, there are par- and there are other parliaments who have managed to do it as well. Yes, yeah, so we're doing so, it already. We, we, exactly. So we, we should be doing that, and I and I, and I hope and uh, and believe with. I think there's, there's there's every chance that some of these things happen. They've already happened with select committees. Yes. I think they can happen. There is a way of doing this. Um, the details have got to be worked out. Yeah, uh, anyway, absolutely. And obviously it's got to be done else. fairly yeah. securely. That's, um, that's been yeah, yeah, sure. a point that has been made, that the IT actually has to be in place. Uh, also, um, 
it is, of course, the conclusion today, actually, of the Labour leadership process in amongst all of this, the deadline for ballots to be submitted and then the winner to be announced on Saturday. Was it right amidst all of this to keep going with this process, to go ahead with it? I, I think it was very difficult to do anything else, actually. You, you had a timetable set out. Because most of this is done, because it's all done either online or by postal ballot for those who weren't able to use the online system, um, actually, whilst there's it, it's clearly a degree of imperfection in it, um, I think it was probably unavoidable to, to continue with the original uh, time scale. Now, there's not going to be a great big conference on Saturday. It's all going to be done virtually. The, the winner will be announced and then we'll uh, do a media round. Um, so that's, that's unusual and that's as it, as it should be. Um, but I don't think there's any other way of doing it, no. Yeah, OK. I mean, we, we, let's, you know, perhaps go past the officialdom and all this and say it's pretty clear it's going to be a coronation for Keir Starmer, uh, pretty much. I know you're a Keir Starmer supporter. Is he likely to clear out um, the old regime, the Corbynistas, do you think? Uh, well, I don't know what his shadow cabinet's going to be. Um, he hasn't told me. <laughs> and there's no reason why he would have done but, um, look, a number of people in the Shadow Cabinet now have made clear they, they, they wish to uh, go to the back benches. Um, you know, that, that, that's mm. fine. And he'll have, it, he'll have his own idea on who to, uh, to, to bring in. But one of the things about Keir's campaign has been the pluralistic nature of it. So he's got people from uh, who, who worked on Jeremy's first leadership campaign, like Simon Fletcher and Cat Fletcher. They're not related, by the way. Um, working at senior levels in the campaign on the one hand, and then he's got Matt Pound who's from Labour First, which is the other end of the spectrum, mm. so to speak, in the party and, uh, you know, people of different opinions, political opinions in between, because he's, he's taken a pluralistic, unifying approach, and the way he's, way he's operated in the campaign where he, he has avoided um, quite um, provocative um, uh, requests from some of your colleagues at times to, to criticise other campaigns. He hasn't done that. Uh, mm. he, he has been a unifying figure. And I think so then do you think, is he going to be unifying to the point that he will give roles to Lisa Nandy and Rebecca Long-Bailey? Well, he said so. Um, so I, I expect to see them both offered jobs in the Shadow Cabinet, yeah. yeah. Uh, Bill, what about anti-Semitism? I mean, that has been the underlying problem for the Labour Party for a couple of years at least. Uh, is this something that he can sort out for you? I, I have absolutely no doubt that Keir will make sure that uh, people who are anti-Semitic are thrown out of the Labour Party. And I think it will be one of the first things he does. I think it is, it, it, it is a mark of how serious he is about getting his leadership right. Mm. Um, you know, we have to rebuild our, our relationship with the Jewish community. I mean, I've got, uh, my, my dad's Jewish, so you know, it's, it's really... Uh, affects me deeply. I mean, he was telling me not very long ago about the family who stayed in Eastern Europe uh, and mm. lived in villages that no longer exist. We have no idea how many of our relatives were killed in the Holocaust. That's mm. a common story from people with, from people with Jewish, Jewish heritage. So it means yeah. a lot to me. But I, I have no doubt Keir will, will deal with this. Uh, he has spoken and, out. And hopefully, really, hopefully swiftly. Through the last few years uh, on it. And, and I think he'll, keep, he'll, he'll make sure it happens. Bill, I just want to end, please, on a thought. Antisemitism is hugely important, but in terms of your local constituency, just back to the coronavirus issue, how worried are you about your local constituents? Well, I'm very worried. Yesterday we had the first deaths announced at Southport Normskirk Hospital, 
which is uh, one of the two uh, hospital trusts that, that, that serve the constituency, Aintree being the other. And they, you know, there are hundreds of people in Aintree, which is a much larger hospital, uh, with who've been tested positive, um, um, a number of whom have died as well. And have you got easy, enough easy, PPE, enough staff well. to deal no, with it? No, we haven't. I mean, PPE is critical, but it's the, I'll come back to testing. Uh, we have to test so that the right people can go to work. I've got friends who are doctors. Mm. One of them's sick, the other one is self-isolating. If the yeah. one who's self-isolating isn't sick, he should be at work. But he can't be because there's no testing. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Caroline. Yeah, so businesses hit by coronavirus, the economic impact has caught my eye. Now, British firms have less than three months' cash in reserve as they deal with a huge fall in domestic and overseas revenue. That is according to a new study that comes to us uh, from the British Chambers of Commerce. They've revealed also that almost one in five one in five firms, Roger, have less than one month's worth of cash and almost half do expect to take advantage of the government's coronavirus job retention scheme, which covers 80% of wages of furloughed workers. This is a weird word, Roger. It's really well known in the US, not so much here, um, you know, where you are still employed. Uh, usually in the US, furloughed workers don't get paid, but obviously with the government support scheme, you do get paid here up to a maximum of £2,500 per month. So that from uh, the British Chambers of Commerce. Meanwhile, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the IFS, has been issuing a bit of a warning, saying Britain's on course to issue more debt than at any time since the financial crisis. The IFS says much of it may end up with the Bank of England, which has massively expanded its bond-buying programme in response to the virus. But that would still leave the public finances much more exposed to short-term interest rates. That's according to the IFS. They say the economy rebounds and rates rise if that happens then so too will the amount the government spends on paying off the interest. Yeah, that's the real worry. You know, if you convert it all into debt, what happens to that debt later? Uh, meanwhile, the US President Donald Trump uh, says that arrangements have been made now to evacuate British passengers on two cruise ships set to dock in Florida soon after being hit by coronavirus. Four people have died aboard the cruise ship Zandam, including a 75-year-old British man, uh, John Carter, whose widow has been isolated on board that ship since his death. The couple were among 200 Britons on the ship, which has recorded now nine confirmed cases of COVID-19 and has some 200 people on board who've reported uh, the flu-like symptoms. Meanwhile, BA and the Union Unite have reached a broad deal that will see around 36,000 staff suspended. That's according to the BBC. The report comes after the grounding of much of the BA fleet, of course, due to the coronavirus crisis. And the decision would mean up to 80% of cabin crew, ground staff, engineers and head office personnel would have their jobs suspended, though no staff are expected to actually be made redundant. 
So those are the top uh, stories in uh, politics and business. Uh, now, let's also talk about the Labour ballot uh, for the party's leader. Of course, it wraps up today with Sir Keir Starmer widely expected to win the contest. If crowned on Saturday, the shadow Brexit uh, secretary is widely expected then to purge Jeremy Corbyn's allies within weeks of becoming leader. That's according to the Sunday Times, which uh, detailed Starmer's plans. We're joined by Tom Hamilton, former Labour advisor and associate director at WPI strategy. There's no real doubt, is there, Tom, that it's going to be Keir, the new leader? I'm always very nervous of saying there's no doubt that something's <laughs> going to happen. Um, but it seems pretty likely. I mean, he, he led in MP nominations, he led in um, constituency party nominations, and he's been well ahead in opinion polls that have been taken of the Labour membership, which have historically been quite accurate. They were certainly pretty accurate in the 2015 contest. So um, I think um, he's almost certain to win. Um, but let, let's be let, let let's not be completely certain till uh, till it's announced on Saturday. All right, but but if we if we do, for the sake of argument, make yeah. an assumption, how will Labour change under Keir Starmer? Well, I think there's uh, there's a couple of ways in which it's going to change. Um, firstly, I do think um, it's just just going to become a little bit sharper and more competent. I mean, it's uh, it's partly a criticism of Jeremy Corbyn, but not entirely, to say that he hadn't had much experience of frontline politics when he was that he was elected, and um, his operation took quite a while to get going, and um, was probably never as sharp as it might have been. I mean, Keir Starmer is someone who has um, led a major organisation in the past, and he's someone who um, who is going to have broad support within the Parliamentary Labour Party, and will be able to put to, to put together a pretty talented um, shadow cabinet, and I just expect Labour to be able to sort of just step up a bit in terms of its forensic scrutiny of, uh, of what the government's doing, which is particularly important at a time like this, where you know, we've got a major crisis going on where everyone agrees broadly on, um, on what we want the outcome to be, but there are some problems along the way with, what the, with some of the decisions the government's made, and you know, Labour, as an opposition party, will want to be scrutinising that. And then secondly, yeah. I think there will be some changes in terms of, um, of, of policy, but... I think those, those changes are going to be driven much more by the external environment than they are by questions of whether you want to be, you know, sticking to Jeremy Corbyn's programme or going away from Jeremy Corbyn's programme. I think a lot of those questions have become more irrelevant more quickly than we might have thought just by the massive changes we've seen in the last, in the last month or so. Mm. You know, the big political challenges of the next two, three, four years are going to be about the long-term response to, to, to this crisis once the immediate crisis has passed. And I think that's going to raise lots of new political questions and create new political opportunities for, opportunities for an opposition um, yeah. and create the space for policy discussions that perhaps were off the table previously. Look, do you think that the, um, that the kind of consensus politics that we have at the moment is actually the right thing to do? I understand that we're in a crisis and that we all have to pull together to try to get through this. But on the other hand, it does lead me to worry about whether the Labour Party is really holding the government's feet to the fire. You know, we know that there's a time lag when it comes to coronavirus. Um, the testing is simply not there, especially when you look at other countries. And, you know, the information has been, um, you know, the promises of more testing, those have not been delivered. And that should be a real, real worry. Yeah, and I think I think it will be. I think there's always a tricky balance for any opposition in a situation like this, where there's a, a national crisis, where, as I say, 
Um, everyone's on the same side in the sense that we, we all want it dealt with and we all want it to, to go away as quickly as possible with as few deaths as possible and as little economic disruption as possible. Um, so you've got to be broadly supportive of the general direction while raising questions without seeming too, too opportunistic about it. And that's always hard for, uh, for oppositions to do. But I think Labour will be quite well placed to, you know, to raise questions about uh, the testing regime and the, and the speed at which uh, Britain is able to access the tests that it needs, or about um, how quickly companies that that need money are, are are getting money to them in order to, to to avoid, you know, going bust or laying off their workers. And I think those questions are going to keep on coming up. I don't. I mean, I don't think it's that fair to criticise Labour at the moment for um, not having for not being at the front and centre of all of the political stories of the day, because it just isn't. It's the opposition at a time when the, when the government is making lots of decisions very quickly, and Labour doesn't have access to all the information that it would need to, um, to question all of those decisions. But it, it's, it's going to be in a position now, I think, to, to ask those questions in but, a bit more detail than it has. But, Tom, isn't part of the problem that, in fact, the, the government has actually stolen all of the left's clothes anyway, as pretty much Corbyn admitted the other day, that the sort of spending, the scale of spending, paying people's wages, effectively nationalising great chunks of the economy. I mean, where does Labour and the left go? Well, I think that, I mean, I, I, I see that argument, but I think it actually leaves Labour in, in, in a relatively strong position going forward, because... Um, a, because there are going to be some problems with the implement implementation of that, which you, can, uh, which you can point to and exploit. But more importantly, because what the Conservative government has done, and I think it's been right to do it, is to, uh, to deal with a, a massive economic shock by going towards you know, ma massive borrowing to deal with it. And it's going to have to um, you know, deal with that in the long term. Now, what it did in 2010 was to say that that had to be dealt with by a massive program of cuts and austerity after extensive borrowing to deal with the financial crisis. And whether it was right or wrong about that, it's got a choice now of either um, instituting a similar kind of program, which will be enormously difficult, probably quite unpopular, will cause huge hardship, or it will say that's not necessary and, in effect, undercut the philosophical justification for a decade of, of, of government in which significant cuts were made. So it's got a bit of a dilemma there, and I think Labour has political opportunities on either side of that. The other opportunity is that, I mean, for example, just today we've heard that there have been almost a million new universal credit claims mm -hmm. um, in the last fortnight. Um, now, one of the things that that does is it, it brought a lot more people into contact with the welfare state who will discover that it doesn't perhaps function as well as they might, and who might become a little bit more sympathetic to the plight of people who've been, um, who've been stuck having to claim benefits for the last few years. And I think it will be a little bit harder for government to implicitly, um, I, I don't want to overstate this, but implicitly you know, scapegoat benefit claimants when it turns out that you know, a lot of people with better paid jobs who've lost their jobs through, you know, let's say no fault of their own because of coronavirus, have been through a system which doesn't necessarily work very well. So there are going to be lots of opportunities for people to see where the state has, mm. is, is not functioning as well as it might, who haven't previously had to be in contact with it very much, who will now recognise that perhaps, you know, it, yeah. it needs more support than it's been getting. Yeah, and surely that that argument will apply equally to the NHS. Um, yeah, you know, uh, the whole argument around you know spending more uh, on the NHS and how many of us don't often come into contact with it, but now many more of us sadly will. Look, leadership, as we keep hearing, matters at times like this. Who do you think is going to end up being on the front bench then in terms of, of Keir Starmer? Because I think that's also worth watching. I'm, I'm very wary of naming names, which was a little bit, a little bit dangerous. I had a quick sort of look through the current 
um, the current Shadow Cabinet lineup, and it looks to me like at least half of the current Shadow Cabinet are pretty likely to go, although we have to wait and see what happens in the next few days. I think there are, there are quite a lot of sort of talented people on the back benches who are either, or, or, or on the junior ranks of the front benches, benches, who are either, you know, relatively young, relatively inexperienced, therefore haven't had a chance to get to Shadow Cabinet yet, or who've been overlooked for, you know, political ideological reasons haven't been prepared to serve under Jeremy Corbyn, who have quite a lot to offer. So I think, I think people like, um, you know, these are people who have been on the front bench, but I think, I think people like Jonathan Reynolds, Annalise Dodds, both in John McDonald's Treasury team, but not particularly, um, you know, McDonald Corbyn loyalists are both likely to get pretty decent, uh, decent promotions. Um, people like Sarah Jones, who's worked heavily on, uh, on Keir Starmer's campaign. Uh, a lot of talk about Rachel Reeves. I don't know whether she'll get um, a big job or not, but, you know, she's been sort of out in the cold for the last four or five years. There are a lot of people who I think are in line for promotion. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.